We are in the book of Romans. This is part 20 in the series. Part 20 in the book of Romans. Today is how to be saved. Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 21. My sources include Tim Keller's Romans 8 through 16 for you. Uh, his commentary on Romans. Stuart Aliot, The Gospel as It Really Is, a commentary also on Romans. Uh, John R. W. Stott, the late John R. W. Stott, The Message of Romans from the Bible Speaks Today series. R. Kent Hughes, Romans, Righteousness from Heaven, from his Preach the Word series. And also the late R. C. Sproul, which is really hard to say, but he's been uh, in heaven for a few years now. His book on Romans from the St. Andrew's Expositional Commentary series. Romans 10, I think it's really important that if you have your Bible, that you stay with your Bible open and follow along with us. Uh, it's, you know, once I read, don't, don't close it up because there's more that we'll be looking at in this chapter as we look at it uh, throughout the, the, the chapter, the 10th chapter of Romans. And also the outline. If you are here or if you are following us at home, uh, please keep both of those open and follow along as we stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own way, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your hearts, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. 
But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your heart, for your own people, Israel. And yet, so many have rejected you, Lord. And we just thank you for the opportunity as a Gentile, as one who's not a Jew, to be grafted in to the vine. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Oh, Lord, thank you for including us, for choosing us, and yet give us the grace to understand that we also must choose you, Lord, by faith. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached? Apart from Jesus. Because we know Jesus preached what is the greatest sermon of all in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. In American history, the greatest sermon ever preached is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You ever heard of that one? It's pretty famous. You should look it up. I mean, you can't really hear it live or anything like that like you'd like to on Google, but you can read it. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards in what was known as the Great Awakening. Now, what's a Great Awakening? It's a revival. It's a move of God's Spirit that really people have nothing to do with. God moves and people's lives are changed. There's been at least four Great Awakenings, but the one I'm talking about occurred in the 18th century. I was saved. I came to know Jesus because of a Great Awakening in the late 60s and early 1970s called the Jesus Movement. Okay, the Lord was moving. I can't tell you how many contemporaries I've talked to through the years who were saved in the early 70s like I was. But Jonathan Edwards was preaching in 1741. His message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is is really stunning. It reflects a then-current style of sermons preached to condemned criminals just before their execution, during which the minister would stress their imminent encounter with God and exhort them to repent to avoid the torments of hell. In fact, his text was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which says, Their foot shall slide in due time. Now, in a shocking move, Edwards applied his form to his hearers, emphasizing the sinfulness of even respectable church folks. Like us. As he hammered home the instability of their position before God, Edwards was in effect comparing his audience to condemned murderers. He pastored in Northampton, Massachusetts. He had a friend who was a pastor south of him, 28 miles south of him, in Enfield, Connecticut. And that church, that pastor... Sad that his own congregation seemed to be unaffected by the great awakening, by the revival that was taking place in his world at the time. He invited Jonathan Edwards to come and preach at his church. His goal was to turn and to teach the horrors of hell, the dangers of sin, and the terrors of being lost without Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. A few weeks before preaching at Enfield, a sermon, which, by the way, if you look it up in history, 
while he's preaching this sermon, which he basically read, people were screaming. People started screaming because of how he was describing the agony of hell. They started screaming and then would crawl to the front altar to pray and to receive Christ as their Savior. And then they would weep with joy. So it was a very moving service. I cannot imagine what it was like to be in that worship service that day. But here's the interesting thing. Is Edwards preached that same sermon that he preached at Enfield weeks before to his own congregation in Northampton. The flock there responded only, as far as we know, by listening and then shaking his hand as, as they left, saying, Fine word, Pastor. Isn't that amazing? What's, what's the difference? Well, it reinforces Jonathan Edwards' own analysis of that great awakening, that it's the Word, it's the Word of God, that's the occasion for the awakening. It's a necessary one. And the Spirit of our God is the one who does the work. Because the Holy Spirit works as He wills. His passing, the Holy Spirit's passing through Enfield could be seen through the lasting changes that brought about great revival in that community around that church. How we need a revival like that today, wouldn't you say? Please join me in praying for a revival. We can't concoct a revival. One time I was talking to someone about planning a revival. I said, well, what if we planned a revival? He said, you can't plan a revival. This is an old preacher. He said, God is the one who does revival. You just plan a series of meetings. Yes, we need revival. We need a great awakening in our country, in our world today. I told you about the shock rock musician Alice Cooper. Some of you are too young to know who Alice Cooper is, but um, he had a great song, School's Out. It was kind of appropriate that I talk about Alice Cooper since school's been out so long. (laughs) And his lyrics were, school's out for the summer. And then he said, school's out forever. (laughs) And uh, so he was a shock rock. He he put all the makeup on. You really ought to look him up too if you don't know who he is. But sadly... Sadly, Alice Cooper drank a bottle of whiskey every single day and used cocaine on a regular basis. His lifestyle almost destroyed his marriage to his wife, Cheryl, who is his wife now, still, of 27 years. He reached the point where he said, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so he told his wife, I'm going to change. I'm done with all that. She said, prove it. Go to church with me. Okay, so Alice Cooper started heading off to church with his wife and said later he felt like when he got to church that God was speaking to him, speaking to him personally, every Sunday. Today, the 72-year-old rock and roll legend that you can hear on Sirius FM hosting a radio show, he and his wife are both Christians today. He says, quote, my father was a pastor, my grandfather was an evangelist, I grew up in the church. I went as far as I could away from it. I almost died, and then I came back. How did that happen? Obviously, Alice Cooper, who in case you aren't aware, is a man. 
Alice Cooper had been exposed to God's Word as a child, and once he started going back to the Word of God that was being taught, the Lord spoke to him. Look in our text in verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Last week we studied Romans chapter 9, which is a very difficult chapter if you've never read it. If you weren't with us last week, you ought to listen to us on podcast or look up uh, uh, the worship service on our YouTube uh, uh, station. And in that chapter, which addressed the doctrine of God's sovereign election in salvation, today in chapter 10 we look at the other side of the coin, which is human responsibility. Because you are responsible. I am responsible. And whether you and I like it or not, whether you agree or not, the Bible teaches clearly both God's sovereignty, divine sovereignty, and mankind's personal responsibility. Even though the Bible doesn't show us how to reconcile the two. And see, that's why a lot of people won't teach it because they can't understand it, so they won't teach it because they can't explain it. I mean, that would be like us saying, well, let's just not talk about the Trinity because we can't understand it. And you really can't. It's really difficult to understand the Trinity. One God who has revealed himself in three persons. But you can't ignore the fact that the New Testament clearly, specifically talks about God revealing himself in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's for another day. But that leads me to say, in this whole grand scheme of salvation, God places the responsibility for Israel's lostness on Israel. Israel. God rejected Israel because Israel rejected the gospel. If you are without Christ in your life, it is not because you are non-elect, but because you have rejected Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. I think a lot of you, even some of you that don't know your Bible very well, you know, you know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. But we don't always know what's after that, so look at verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in Him and Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. See, I didn't understand that when I became a Christian. I didn't understand that I hadn't rejected Christ in my mind, but by not believing, I had rejected Christ. See how that works? They stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So, again, we're talking about what it means to take responsibility for your own choices, your own salvation. And so let's look at three lessons this morning in Romans chapter 10. The first of which is Israel's ignorance... Israel's ignorance of the righteousness of God. Look at verse 2. Paul says, For I can testify that they, the Israelites, are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Look, God never intended that the Jews would be saved through perfect obedience to the law. 
And he didn't question their sincerity. In fact, he knew from personal experience what it meant to be zealous for the law because Paul, as a Pharisee, was extremely zealous for the law and that's why he was persecuting the church. But like Paul, he says you're doing this in ignorance. Proverbs 19 verse 2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good. Desire without knowledge is not good. Paul knew what it was to be sincere, but also to be sincerely wrong, to be sincerely mistaken. Have you ever been like that? You know, you've you got a, an idea about something, you've got a conviction about something, and you're just going to die on that hill, and then you find out you're wrong. Feels weird, doesn't it? Feels bad, doesn't it? Pleading. Paul is pleading with his own people, the Jews, praying for them that their failure to live up to the law would only serve to drive them to grace. But to this point, it hadn't happened. And when our text says they did not know the righteousness of God, it simply means they had no idea what the way of salvation involved, how the righteous God brings the unrighteous into a right relationship with Himself by giving them a righteous status. Yet in ignorance, Paul says the Jews tried to establish a righteousness of their own. Paul's point, Israel should have known better. They should have known better. Religious people like the Jews tend to complicate this whole matter of salvation. We make it a lot more difficult than it really should be. And in our text, Paul gives a loose translation of Moses' farewell address in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So Moses gave this farewell address, and basically Paul is trying to sum it up. Look at verse 6 through 8. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. In short, Paul was reminding the Israelites, You don't have to go to heaven or to the realm of the dead to find Christ. He's right near us. He's near us. But we try to make it so hard, don't we? I mean, Paul is telling us the word of faith is available to all who will believe. And it's not hard to understand as long as you have ears to hear what the truth is. And so he says, call on the name of the Lord. Everyone, he says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says that in verse 13. So what does that involve? Two things. Look at verses 9 and 10. I have shared verses 9 and 10 with a ton of people. It's a great couple of verses to tell you how to be saved. I've sat down with confirmation class after confirmation class, one-on-one with children who are coming into membership of the church, and I have read these verses with them. And you may have forgotten if you've been in that class, but I'm reminding you now to look at Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, because it tells you the way to be saved. Look at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Do you know that was the standard greeting among the church? When the church would see each other in the first century, they would say, not hello, how's it going? They'd say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. To be justified is to do what? To be declared innocent of your sins by God. Justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. 
So let, let's look at this. Number one, you are to believe in your heart. This is in your outline. You're to believe, first of all, in the person of Christ, the person of Christ, the person of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. And in the Greek Old Testament, the word kurios was the translation for God's personal name, Yahweh. So in the Septuagint, you would see this as translated Yahweh. So to call Jesus Lord was not only to claim deity, but to claim that he was the supreme authority over this world. He is Lord. We sang that little chorus a few weeks ago. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll be teaching 1 Corinthians at Ebenezer Christian Seminary this week. And as we begin 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the first ten verses, the word Lord is used seven times to speak to who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. You must believe in the person of Christ. You must believe, secondly, in the work of Christ. The work of Christ, that Jesus died, that he was raised from the dead, meaning we must believe in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. So believe in your heart is the first step, then confess with your mouth is the second step. And you know what? It's not enough to just be a secret saint to, to in your heart say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't want anybody to know. Can't do that. doesn't work that way. You believe Jesus is your Savior, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead for you to secure your eternal life? Then say so. Profess that. I love that we profess our faith every Sunday through a creed. We are a creedal group, and we believe that's a very valuable thing because you're confessing Jesus not only to the person who's sitting around you, but you're confessing Jesus to yourself. Faith is not mental assent to the facts. In Hebrew, faith is only expressed as an action. It's something that you do. And so lesson number one today is Israel's ignorance of the righteousness of God. The second lesson is the necessity of evangelism. The necessity of evangelism. What's evangelism? Sharing your faith. Telling others about Jesus Christ. Comedian Jay Leno once conducted years ago a man-on-the-street interview. I, I thought he was really good at this uh, by asking random people to name one of the Ten Commandments. So I'll just ask you today, can you name one of the Ten Commandments? It's getting kind of nervous in here. People are thinking, okay, I know one of them. Let me think. Well, come on, let's walk through them. You shall have no other gods before me, God said. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not worship an idol. I think I mixed those up. I think uh, idols two. Then don't take the name of the Lord in vain is three. Four is the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And for the believer today, the Lord's day is Sunday. You're doing one very valuable part of worship, of keeping the Sabbath by being here today. Number five, anybody? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long on the earth. Number six, you shall not kill. You shall not kill. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit sexual sin is basically what that says. Number eight, you shall not steal. You shall not take what is not yours, what does not belong to you. Number nine, 
You shall not bear false witness or lie. Number ten, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. You should not desire anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, those are the ten. Well, Jay Leno asked all these people, could you name one of the Ten Commandments? And guess what answer he kept hearing over and over and over again? God helps those who help themselves. Right? Wrong. You know, it's often used as a get-your-act-together kind of verse. A get-your-act-together approach to salvation, but it's not in the Bible. Did you know that? that? That's not in the Bible. A French author from the 1600s once said this, Help yourself and heaven will help you too. But it was the 17th century English thinker Algernon Sidney who has been credited with the now familiar wording, God helps those who help themselves. Benjamin Franklin later used it in Poor Richard's Almanac, 1736, and it has been widely quoted ever since. A passage with similar sentiments can be found in the Quran, where it says, Indeed, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. But that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, never appears in the Bible. And the way it's often used as this whole self-help approach to salvation is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches about salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So let's look in our text again at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And really, just so you know, it wasn't that the messenger had beautiful feet. What did that verse mean? When they see them coming, when they would see a preacher of the gospel coming... It was a beautiful thing because they knew his message was going to be one of hope. And so that was the beautiful part. His feet were coming. That's why it says that. But it was all about the messenger bringing the good news. So try putting the, the last six verbs in the opposite order in what we just read in verses 14 and 15. And here's what you get. Our Lord Jesus sends out heralds or messengers. Messengers or heralds preach. People hear, people then believe, believe, believers then call on the name of the Lord, and those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. So unless people are commissioned for the task, there will be no gospel preachers. Unless the gospel is preached, sinners will not hear the message of the gospel. Unless they hear his call, they will not believe the truths of his death and resurrection. And unless they believe these truths, they will not call upon him. And unless they call upon him, they will not be saved. That's really the message of our text today. You know, I was saved in a revival, a youth revival meeting in a church. People are saved in different places. You could be saved anywhere. The main thing is, have you been saved? Have you asked Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord? Have you called on the name of the Lord to save you because you have no hope in yourself. Have you done that? 
It's amazing that people are saved through preaching, but they are. Colossians 1, or I'm sorry, Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Listen to this passage. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And it really is a crazy idea, isn't it? That a person could talk and people could be saved. But I hope you understand this person is not just talking. I'm telling you the good news. I'm telling you the word of God. And that's where the power comes from. So, first lesson, Israel's ignorance of the righteousness of God. Second lesson, the necessity of evangelism, that if we don't tell it, people won't get to believe. And then the final lesson of the day is the reason for Israel's unbelief. Evangelism comes from the word evangel or evangelion, which means good news. And so this whole section is about the Jewish response, or actually the Jewish non-response to the good news. The good news of the gospel. We've talked already about the stages of response in verse 14. But now in verse 17, if you look at verse 17, those stages are reduced to only two. This is a great verse to remember. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So really there's two parts to that. We'll reduce those six to two. Faith, number one, comes from hearing. And the New English Bible actually says being awakened to And that's really what happened to me. I was awakened to the message of the gospel when I was saved. The message is heard through the word of Christ. And then secondly, hearing leads to believing. I heard the good news and I responded. So in terms of Israel, the first question is, did they not hear? Since believing depends on hearing, it's really a logical question. We'll look at verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Of course they did. Wherever there were Jews, wherever there were Jews, there the gospel has been preached. So at least to a second question, did they not understand? After all, it's possible to hear. My wife will tell you it's very possible to hear without understanding. As Jesus warned us in the parable of the sower. Oh, you know, we hear, but do we really hear? Even so, Paul rejects that as a possibility. Our text says there are people with no understanding, but they're not Jews. They're Gentiles, which means that if Israel's rejection of the gospel cannot be attributed to her not hearing it or to her not understanding it, then she must be without excuse. That is, Israel is simply rebelliously stubborn. Why? Two reasons. One, because we know... Jesus Christ has come. The Messiah has come. Secondly, because we also know from Scripture that God told them He was coming. He told them He was coming and what He would be like before He came. So I want you to think about this. Jewish rejection of God's plan of salvation is nothing new. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah was reporting, Lord, who has believed our message? It's Romans 10, verse 16. What was lacking in the Jews was faith. Faith in the word of Jesus. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Galatians 3, 21 and 22. 
It says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so, yes, the Israelites were ignorant of God's righteousness according to verse 3, but here is something very different. Very different now. What you might call willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. What is that? Well, that's where a decision is made in bad faith. You know, you make decisions in good faith all the time. Well, this is a decision made in bad faith. To avoid becoming informed about something. In other words, you just don't want to know this. You just don't want to hear this. For example, let's say you receive something that's stolen property and you just don't want to know that it was stolen property. Don't, don't, don't tell me that. I'm just going to do it anyway. That's willful ignorance. Let's say you're transporting something that's illegal, like, say, illegal drugs. You're transporting them, but you're like, it's in the trunk. I don't care. It's not, I don't want to even know that. It's willful ignorance. That was the Jews' approach. A lot of them knew who Jesus was. They said, this is the son of Mary and Joseph? They would refuse to believe, even though the miracles were confirmation right in front of them that he was real. Willful ignorance. Is that you? You know it's true, but you just don't want to deal with that right now. I had a girl say to me one time in my youth group days, she said, I don't want to be a Christian now. I want to have some fun now. That was, that was actually honest. But a lot of times we're not that honest. It's willful ignorance. We're trying to be subtle about it. So in this chapter, you really have eight truths. You have the availability of Christ through faith in verses 6 through 8. You have the promise of salvation to all who believe in verses 9 through 11. You have the importance of evangelism in verses 14 and 15. You have the unresponsiveness of Israel in verse 16. You have the universal proclamation of the gospel in verse 18. You have the Gentiles provoking Israel by their belief in verse 19, which we'll talk a lot more about next time. You have the divine initiative of God's grace. And then you have the, pray, the patient grief of God who is the messenger. God waiting for you to turn, as he is the only one who can turn you, which is, again, something that's really difficult to understand. So in chapter 9, Paul attributes Israel's unbelief to God's purpose in election, where many Jews were passed by and only a remnant of believing Jews were left. Yet here in chapter 10, he attributes Israel's unbelief to Israel's own disobedience. As John Stott puts it, their fall was their fault. Even so, this chapter is proof positive that the power of God is in the Word of God. What I'm doing right now in walking through this book, this chapter, is called expositional preaching. It's a lot harder work than other types of preaching. You know there are lots of different types of preaching. There are lots of preachers who preach whatever they really want to say and utilize a verse, rather than taking a verse and explaining what that verse says. I must confess, there was a time where I bought into the topical approach to preaching, because it is a lot easier. And for a season, I preached topical sermons and occasionally textual sermons where you get your main points from the text and then you just branch out and do whatever you want to do 
chasing other subjects. I don't know if you know this, but expositional preaching is really the best way to preach. I I know I'm a slow learner, but uh, the last number of years that I've been your pastor, that's the approach that I've taken is to basically walk through a book and let the verse tell you what it says. Rather than finding out what I want to say and then finding a passage that goes along with it. You, You understand the difference? I think there are very few preachers that preach expositional sermons anymore. I listen to enough, and I tend to just stop listening and go find another one who does teach expositionally. I had a friend tell me years ago, preach the word. It was great, great advice. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says, preach the word. Why? Because there's life in the word. There's life in the word. R.C. Sproul once said, it would blow the lid off this country if every preacher, if every preacher would preach expositional sermons. Because he says that's where the power is. It's not in our programs, not in our buildings or our parking lots. It is in the Word. And so I would say to you, if every church member would ask their pastor to preach expository sermons, it would change this country. It would change the world. That brings us to our verse of the week, which is Hebrews 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Read it out loud with me, please. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, that your word is alive and active. And so we thank you for your word going into our hearts today, the hearts of the people that are here with us in this sanctuary and the hearts of the people that are listening online. Lord, we pray that your word will bear fruit, that if there are those listening today who are lost And without hope, without salvation in their lives, without Jesus in their lives, that you, Lord, by your word, and by your spirit with the word, you will give life to those who are dead in their sins. And Lord, for us who are believers, may we rejoice in our great and wonderful salvation, which we had nothing to do with. You are the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we praise you, Lord, for calling us to be your children. But we also thank you for the grace that enabled us to choose Christ and to put you on the throne of our lives as Lord and King. So bless, Lord, this this time of closing worship and open our hearts that we might commit ourselves anew to you. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. In closing, we will sing...